Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Hello and welcome to GodPod 84. And uh, in this one we have the old team back again. Not so much for the old, thank you very much. I uh, feel very old. I'm happy with that. <laughs> we are certainly older than when we began GodPod. Well, that's true. We began GodPod about how long ago was it now? About eight years? Is it as long as that? I think it is about that. In that time. small hut somewhere in the grounds of HTB with yeah, we did. builders all around. and yeah. Whereas now we're in the bilges of a new, new building. So exactly. that's huge progress. Yes, for you. We have a wonderful new building. It is a wonderful new building. That's we're true. all a little bit older, hopefully a tiny bit wiser. <laughs> Certainly greyer, I think, most of us. But um, yes. <laughs> but we are still drinking tea and coffee and eating biscuits. As we always have done in Godpod, as it was in the beginning, <laughs> is now, and ever shall be. Um, not that Godpod is eternal. I'm sure it'll come to an end one day, but we're going to carry on in the meantime. So today we have uh, Michael. Hi. And we have Jane. You do. And uh, myself, Graham Tomlin. So... Um, uh, for the for new, new uh, listeners to Godpod, it's Michael Lloyd, of course, principal of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. Indeed, since my defection. Exactly. Yes. That's right. We've just about forgiven you for that now. That, Michael, that's kind. Gracious. We, we are very generous. We like to lend what we have. We Notice <laughs> the word lend. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Only too glad to be rid of it. <laughs> and of course, Jane, who is a tutor in theology here at St. Melitus College and St. Paul's Theological Centre. And um, myself, Graham Tomlin, Dean of St. Melitus College. So anyway, those of you who know us, well, you know all that already, but for new listeners to GodPod, that's who we are. Anyway, we have a couple of um, questions we want to have a look at today. And um, thank you again to everybody who has emailed in various questions. The first one we have is from uh, someone called Carrion Downs. Um, And Carrion uh, says this, I have a question for GodPod that I'm hoping would be able to be unpacked. Uh, we are currently following the faith track in our church. Uh, one of the things we've done, in because um, you didn't know, is... Inflict pop- ourselves on a wider public. Exactly. We, actually, we, we filmed a, a whole um, series of um, talks, lectures on theology, which you can buy under the title Faith Track. You, if you go onto the Alpha um, Resources website, um, you can uh, dig around and find under theological resources, you can buy a, a DVD of the three of us. You actually look, we, we do have faces. <laughs> we do, yeah. You actually see what we look Sadly. like. <laughs> <laughs> I might put you off listening to God, whatever more. But, um, and quite a lot of churches around the, you know, around the country, around the world, use this as a, as a way of doing some theological study within their own churches. And so um, you, you're very welcome to do that if you want to. But anyway, this is something that Carrion's church has been doing. And uh, she just listened to the talk on the Trinity. And out of this came the question, are, cre- are humans created inferior or superior to the angels? I'd always understood, she says, from the Bible that we are created inferior, but my group leaders, both rather learned people, insisted that no way, we are created superior to the angels. Which is it? I'm now a little confused, as I can't seem to find much evidence in the Bible for the latter, whereas there seem to be plenty of places where it talks about humans being inferior to angels. Can you help? No, not really. <laughs> I Michael. think <laughs> I always thought of you as the expert on all things angelic. <laughs> but maybe, actually, Jane has written a book about angels. So we'll, get, we'll get her take yes. on it in a moment. Uh, I've, I've specialised in the fallen variety, whereas Jane, <laughs> characteristically, is more positive. No, absolutely. Um, Jane, why didn't you kick us I off? I think you should definitely start. Mark. Well, I mean, I I think the confusion is because um, scripture isn't 
it isn't, to be honest, an, an issue that Scripture kind of speaks about or is, seems to be terribly interested in. Uh, we are very interested in hierarchy and who's more important and who's higher up the pecking order. Um, and God doesn't seem to be terribly interested in that sort of thing, and the Scriptures aren't either. Um, there is Psalm 8 that talks about um, human beings being created a little lower than the angels, which would suggest there is some kind of pecking order and worse, lately lower. On the other hand, St. Paul talks about us, do not know that you will judge angels, which suggests that we're slightly higher up the pecking order. Um, I think I think that that just goes to show that pecking orders are very unreliable, unrevealing and unhelpful things, um, and that it doesn't really matter where we are. The point is, God has created a hugely diverse creation, uh, all kind of types and stripes and colours and shapes and non-shapes like the angelic world, the physical, the non-physical. Um, and that's part of the glory of it and we just need to revel in it, I think is what I would say. Yes, I mean, I, I'm afraid I agree. Yes, and I don't Jane, really like agreeing had, with Mike. But um, <laughs> I relied on you. It's an outbreak of harmony. Graham, we rely on you. But yes, I mean, I think it, it, is, it, it is a very interesting thing that we we're fussed about who is superior and who is inferior i suppose the thing worth saying is that god um becomes a human being in jesus christ um but that doesn't make us superior that makes us desperate (laughs) Um, because god does that out of generosity and um and because we are in need of um of that act of, of god um, so that that suggests something about the enormous value that God does place on human life, that God is prepared um, to do what sounds like a complete contradiction of God's own nature, which is to become a human being. Um, so we know that we are infinitely valued um, by God, but but I don't think we can in any way pretend that's because we're so great. Um, it is because God is so great that uh, that God becomes human. Mm. Um, but we then are um, the, the Bible does also suggest that we have a, a very particular vocation in relation to the rest of God's creation, and that's a vocation given to human beings uh, and not to angels. It's a vocation uh, to be um, what Genesis calls the images of God um, in creation, to be the ones who um, uh, who display God's love, care. Um, relationality to the rest of of, of creation. Um, so uh, again, it, it's again not really about superiority and inferiority. It's about different roles, isn't it? And I suppose the one thing that is warned about, I think, in the New Testament is is that if you do think that the angels are somehow superior to human beings and there are some indications in scripture that may be be true what we mustn't do is worship angels yeah. mm-hmm. there's a reference in um colossians chapter two i think it is who you know where st paul says do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize in other words there seems to have been some kind of uh, practice maybe in first century judaism of sort of worshiping the angels in some 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 way um and that is something which which we're not to do um the one thing that is said, of course, about superiority is in the book of Hebrews, where it actually talks about how how Jesus the Son is superior to the angels. He became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So the only object of worship is is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not not angelic beings. 
And there can be a kind of fascination with angelic beings, with sort of supernatural forces, with, um, you know, these sort of powers that may exist um, sort of between us and God in the invisible world. And there can be such a, such a fascination that we almost become more fascinated with them than we are with, with, with God. And that's what we're warned against, I think. Um, and that our focus of our worship needs to be Jesus Christ and the God that he reveals to us rather than angelic beings. And that's at least partly because anything else that you worship wants to enslave you. God is the only one who mm. wants you to be free. Mm. Um, the only one who does not compete with us for, exactly. for space yeah. exactly. and for status and for everything else. Exactly. And angelic beings are created beings, which is important to recognize. Yes, it is. Sometimes yeah. in our own imagination, we somehow think ange- angelic beings are somehow because they... They sort of don't exist on the earth because they sort of they're sort of slightly strange and mysterious. They're somehow divine, but of course they're not. They are mm. part of creation, mm. very definitely part of creation, not part of not part of God. And, and I mean, the place to look for real wisdom in this, rather than our spoutings, mm. uh, is is the letter to Hebrews, as, as Graham said, which does have an interesting reflection on the relationship between angels and, and, and human beings in the first uh, couple of chapters. Um, and quotes Psalm 8, hmm. uh, but in the context of saying it's not to angels that he subjected the world to come. Um, uh, and to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In other words, something about the incarnation, something about God becoming human has given us, not that, that we already had it, but it, it, it has given us a value and a dignity hmm. that makes the pecking order irrelevant. <laughs> Uh, we needn't worry about the pecking order because we have that extraordinary value and dignity of having been visited uh, and shared flesh with um, the fleshless God. Well, what do we think about angels? Because um, I suppose people of a more rationalist frame of mind would want to say, well, do we really believe in angels today? And okay, you can kind of understand People believe in God, they believe in Jesus Christ, but angelic beings, it sounds a little bit medieval, it sounds a little bit sort of um, um, strange. Isn't that a relic of the of the sort of mythological past where um, we believed in these sort of strange beings with white wings and all that kind of thing? Do we, do we really believe in angels today? Well, it maybe a relic from the mythological past, but also a prelic of the mythological future. Um, mm. I think the prelic is a new word. <laughs> I know, I just invented it. <laughs> um, I, I think the exciting thing about angels is that they force us into a bigger conception of the universe. <clears throat> um, Charlie Chaplin is alleged to have said when they found that there was no life uh, on Mars, uh, he's li- alleged to have said. Um, I feel lonely. In other words, that somehow he was looking for something more, something bigger, some new forms of existence and being, uh, without which everything becomes a bit kind of predictable and known. Um, Whereas the existence, even if we have very little knowledge of it and very little awareness of of engagement with it, um, of a whole other set of dimensions to reality cracks open the smallness of our world uh, and, and makes it a vast place to explore and to, to be part of. And there, there are those extraordinary visions, aren't there, in some of the um, Old Testament prophets where they suddenly glimpse yes. the, the place where God mm. lives, which is a place of joy and constant worship where um, 
God's angels uh, sing holy, holy. Uh, and and I think to know that even when human beings withhold the, the, the natural worship of creation for the creator, nonetheless, that reality still exists is quite important that 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 the, 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 the song of adoration to God our creator is constant mm. even when we don't join in yes um, and that makes it easier to join in it's easier to join in any song that's already being sung isn't it um, and that sense that there is already um, harmony and and joy and and glory um, reaching out to help us join in mm. um, I think is a hugely important mm. um, concept that seems to me to be there um, in those visions in the Old Testament. And when we feel beleaguered and as if our, the cause of right is going to be swamped and defeated, it's important to remember that yeah. there are whole unseen dimensions of and, and, you know, thousands upon thousands of those who are being obedient to yes. uh, and engaged in the, the worship and service of God. It reminds me of that line in... Um, in Hamlet, isn't it, where it, yes. Hamlet says, there are more things in heaven and, or, and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Mm. Yeah. And it strikes me that's something you almost want to say to the kind of more rationalist frame of mind that says, well, I can only believe in what I see. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There are, And in some ways it, it kind of makes sense. So this, I think, is the Christian version of, of the sort of um, general belief there is out there in supernatural powers of various kinds. Um, I came across a survey recently that actually said 41% of people in the UK do actually believe in angels, which is quite a significant number of, uh, of people. Um, and of course, probably many more believe in ghosts and sort of spiritual powers of one kind or another. And uh, well, what do we think of that as Christians? It seems to me the answer is, well, actually, we do believe in beings that are not human, but they are created. They're not animals. Um, they're not visible to us very often, uh, and yet are, if you like, messengers. And that's what the, I suppose the, the word means, angelos. It's a messenger. They are messengers from God to us, maybe from us to God. Um, they are, and of course, part of that is that, if, which is your speciality, Mike, I'm sure you'll say something about this, that of course those angelic beings are not all working in God's favor. Um, there was a very ancient Christian Jewish tradition in the fall of the angels that the idea is some of these created unseen powers are now working against the purposes of God and seeking to undermine them, which again goes quite a long way to, to explain some of the more mysterious elements of evil in our world that we can't quite pin down to human responsibility and we certainly don't ascribe to God. Where do those things come from? Yes. Apart from uh, another part of creation that is turned against God, a sort of sentient, rational part of creation that is not human, uh, but has, t but has, you know, seeks to resist God's purposes within the world. Yes, a sense that um, there is more to, evil is more than the sum of its parts mm. somehow, mm. Um, and interestingly. When we come across an, an appalling case of, of human evil, it is for the language of the demonic that we reach. Mm. Uh, mm. And somehow no other language quite fits the bill mm. at that point. Mm. But I think the other thing is, 
the kind of reductionist view that, that there's nothing more, you know, there's less to reality than meets. We the are eye. alone in the universe. <laughs> um, doesn't fit my experience of, of the academic world at all. The academic world suggests that any subject that you look at, there's always more than you mm. thought there was. And, and the, the more learned you get, the more you get engrossed in the subject, the more you discover whole realms of mm. uh, the subject that you knew nothing of. And every time you make read one book, it opens up a whole mass of others. Mm. Uh, it would be very odd to me if there were actually less to life than we're currently aware of it seems much more likely that there's more um, because that's one's experience in every field i was talking to a professor of biochemistry the other day who said a few years ago they thought that they'd almost sewn up biochemistry (laughs) Uh, and she said we've been teaching the same i've been teaching the same things for year after year and it was just a matter of kind of mopping up and she said and then suddenly yeah. experiments were done things happened that completely broke the whole paradigm and she said i went in into the beginning of the academic year not knowing what I could tell my students anymore Hmm. because it's all all been thrown And that's exciting, isn't it? As she said, that's incredibly exciting. But it means that there's always more. Yeah, Yeah. The the world is a much richer place than we think. Yes. Actually, a vision of a world that is not just what you can see. There's all kinds of other things going on within it. Actually, give you a picture of a much more fertile, much more rich, much more kind of energetic, dynamic, and dynamic place yeah. than we sometimes imagine. The angels keep their ancient places, turn but a stone and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your estranged faces that miss the many splendid thing. That's not Jane Williams. That's Very Francis good. Thompson, <laughs> 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 and probably um, copyrighted. But there we go. Very good. So if, you're, if you're listening to Godpod, you may want to rewind that a little bit and listen to it again. That's a rather good little quotation. Or, or you can look it up. Yeah. That, the Hand exactly. of Heaven. The Hand of Heaven. Mm. Is it, or is it betwixt Charing Cross and? Anyway, it, anyway. it's Francis yeah, Thompson. It's Francis Thompson. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Carrion, for your uh, very interesting question about angels and. Um, uh, we're going to move on to one more today, which is from uh, Susie Diver. And uh, we know Susie. Hello, Susie, if you're listening to this. And um, Susie has uh, this question. It says, I was wondering um, about polygamy in the Bible. I find it really interesting how David, Solomon of hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. But by the time we get to the New Testament, it seems a given that a man has only one wife and vice versa. Uh, do you know anything about how or why it changed? So, um, uh, and, and particularly uh, going on from that, the Bible doesn't seem to show any disapproval of uh, Old Testament figures having multiple wives or concubines. So uh, how do we go from the patriarchal narratives where the patriarchs seem to have lots of lots of wives to um, the kind of Christian uh, belief or uh, position in the New Testament where marriage is, um, uh, where there is monogamy rather than polygamy? There's uh, that wonderful school child's essay, wasn't there, about how uh, talking about different religions and their beliefs in this, and said that uh, uh, that Jews and Christians believe in only having one uh, spouse. Uh, this is known as monotony. <laughs> uh, and somebody else who said that the maximum penalty for polygamy is two mothers-in-law. Uh, <laughs> Which we'll get letters about, I suppose. But yeah, sure and so you <laughs> should. Yes, quite right too. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, don't write. Don't write in. Just consider him rebuked right now. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but I suppose 
I could quite, I'd like to test this out on you and see what you think, because mm. I haven't ever thought about this before. But, um, but it may be partly because of um, the kind of theology that you see emerging in Paul's writings about marriage and about why that relationship can become a symbol of God's committed, faithful relationship to us. I mean, those, 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 those things that are sometimes seen as sexist teachings in, in um, Paul's letters uh, about the relationship between husband and wife are revolutionary at the time where women are to be treated with that kind of respect, where it is assumed that that relationship is the source of understanding and knowledge of how the world relates to God. Um, and once you begin to get that kind of um, a deep thinking and theology about what a human relationship of committed, ongoing love can be like, mm. and um, then it, it becomes almost impossible to think mm. that polygamy belongs in that framework at all i think that's, that's very very helpful because i think many christian traditions have thought of marriage as sacramental yes in other words it's a sign of something its significance is not in itself and um that's maybe one of the problems we have in our kind of contemporary understandings of marriage we, we you know we think its significance is in the happiness it brings to the two persons involved in it but actually, in a Christian sense, it's not really. It's 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 it has a much wider significance than that. It's a symbol, a sign uh, of something else. It's a sign of of you know within the New Testament, it talks about a sign of you know Christ's love for the church, the church's love for Christ. It's a sign of um, as you say this this this, this uh, the ultimate goal of creation, the coming together of uh, you know of, of creation and God. These different things that are kind of bound together in in unity. Which is what we find, you know, it's a symbol of the the humanity and division, divinity of Christ coming together in unity. It's the the coming together of difference into one. Um, it's a symbol of something much, much bigger than just the individual relationship. So when a marriage takes place, uh, it is um, it signifies something quite significant within the whole fabric of uh, of the world. And I think I think that's probably right that actually a, a polygamous relationship can't do that because it's not saying it doesn't talk about the faithfulness. The sort of exclusive faithfulness to one partner, which actually marriage of that kind, that exclusive monogamous marriage, says actually, you know, God is ultimately committed to us, and He doesn't philander, and so and we are also invited to be committed to God in Jesus Christ, and we're not to philander either. We're not to have adulterous relationships, and it's just as God doesn't have adulterous relationships um, with us, He doesn't leave us and abandon us and go after someone else, as it were. And so it's a sign, it's a symbol of something much, much richer in a way that polygamy never quite could do. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that <clears throat> there is a clearly a kind of progression through the scriptures on, on this view from it being considered normal, to, polygamy to be kind of normal, albeit realistic about some of the tensions and difficulties that that creates, through to the in the New Testament, as, as Jane said, the, the teachings of Paul in particular, um, clarity, or, well, near clarity on it, I think it would be fair to say. Um, and it's also interesting that the, there's a similar progression in the scripture, the scriptures about monotheism. I mean, there is, uh, in the earlier bits of the Old Testament, some leftover view of, it, if not polytheism, then at least monolatry, that there are a number of gods out there um, of whom it is legitimate to worship just one. 
Psalm 82 is an obvious case. Uh, there's a kind of council of gods with one presiding, the presiding god. Mm-hmm. Um, and f- then through uh, to what uh, critics would call second Isaiah, where, no, there's only one god and anything else is, is, is a, a fake god. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I wonder whether the, those two progressions, it would be very difficult to map them chronologically, but whether they're in some way related, mm-hmm. that because you get this move towards monotheism uh, with all the advantages that that has intellectually and and existentially um, whether it's been followed in some way by uh, a view of uh, one man one woman because of all the inherent advantages and benefits that 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 brings i also not sure that it's i'm not sure it's completely true to say that there's there's no suggestion of um, in 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 the old testament that there's no suggestion of condemnation of that. It's, uh, I mean, for mm-hmm. example, David's family, um, that the 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 sheer um, chaos, civil war, bloodshed that follows David's reign is because David has been polygamous. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at what happens um, to Abraham and Sarah, um, that and the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael and so on, I mean, that happens mm-hmm. because um, Abraham has been polygamous and and it you know the narratives don't say this was completely wrong of them but they do show the sheer damage that comes as a result of those kind of imperfect relationships um so i think that i think that the narrative is actually more nuanced than we sometimes realize on this issue i think that's true but it doesn't become an explicit injunction till much later does it no um and, and i think in the same way that monotheism becomes more explicit as the thing develops later. So you can discern within the scriptures a kind of um, kind of growing understanding of both the nature of God, mm-hmm. the nature of human society and how, how, how human beings are to relate to one another. There are all, all aspects in the Old Testament about international relation, relations, the way in which nations deal with each other, how they go to war and so on, which kind of evolve into a, into a very different understanding in the New Testament. And I guess polygamy is one of those that actually many of the cultures in the ancient Near East were polygamous. It wasn't strange for someone like Abraham to have many different wives. Um, but actually over time... As Jane, you were, you were saying, it's you know, the, the difficulties with that particular marital arrangement kind of emerge, not not least because it's deeply unfair to women. Um, you don't get cases of women having many husbands. Uh, it's all part of a patriarchal society, sort of out of which the New Testament emerges with a with, with a again quite radical understanding of of of, of marriage as being. Um, uh, with much more equal rights between a, a man and a woman than you saw within the Old Testament, with, with some of those cultures that the Old Testament reflects. Partly because there, it, it becomes increasingly a realization that um, you that that men can have a real relationship with a woman. That marriage isn't just about procreation and property. Mm-hmm. That it is something much deeper than that. And again, that's an unusual idea in the world of the. Um, of of the Old Testament and 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 the world in which the Christian Church is born, um, there is an assumption that that men have real intellectual and moral and spiritual relationships with other men who are their equals, mm. 
um, but that women are, you know, have other uses, you might say. <laughs> and again, this, this, I think we underestimate how much Christianity has changed that um, understanding and, and has raised the expectation that men and women um, can actually uh, learn from each other and nurture each other and have a, a genuine relationship that begins to teach us about relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, that relate to one another as different but equal. Yes, exactly. In that kind of way. Yeah. I, know, I think the question is in which structure, all other things being equal, would a woman feel more loved? Mm. I think the answer is a maybe reasonably clear one, probably. I'm mean, not, not saying that you can have very loving mm. polygamous relationships, mm. I'm not sure there were, but there's something about saying mm. that I'm choosing you exclusively mm. uh, and that part of the, the wedding service, mm. forsaking all others, yep. uh, is, is a deeply affirming thing mm. to, to say and to have said. And yeah. it's, it's also part of the whole sort of theology of choice, isn't it? That yeah. um, we can't have absolutely everything. Mm. And actually it's not good for us to mm. have absolutely mm. everything. That actually to make a choice and commit to it and uh, allow it to shape us and nurture us and grow us mm. is better for us. As it is for us to have one God rather exactly. than many. Yes. 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 That what seems to... like restriction yeah. is yeah. actually liberation and expansion. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I do want. I mean, looking into our earlier question about angels, whether sometimes that sort of polygamy in the Old Testament was often connected into the into the worship of angels. The idea that there are other beings that that, that seem to be almost kind of semi divine, and you can see that reflected. And in fact, in the early church, it was quite interesting how often um, someone like Justin Martyr, for example, um, you can see in his, some of his writings this debate in the early church as to whether sort of demonic powers are. You know whether they're real or whether they're just 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 non-existent, um, and so, so that, that there was a much more greater consciousness of angelic beings, um, some of which have become demonic through their turning away from from God, that somehow existed between us and and God. And sometimes, if they were, in, you know, in older times, perhaps they were mistaken as divine and therefore worshipped. And that's one of the lines that the New Testament wants to draw, to say, actually, no, no, we do not worship angels or demonic forces. Um, there is only one God, and we are called to to be exclusive in our in our commitment to that one God, just as we are called to be exclusive in our commitment to one wife or husband. Well, there we have it. Very good question, Susie. Opened up all kinds of very yes. interesting things mm-hmm. through the Old Testament and polygamy and everything else. Um, well, that's the end of GodPod84. And um, uh, thank you again for listening. And, uh, well, I'm sure we'll be back again before too long. Uh, if you're not careful. Yes. <laughs> GodPod85 will come upon us before too long. Uh, we're cre- creeping towards 100. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all getting that way. But one day we'll get there. But, um, we, but until then, we will um, say goodbye. So goodbye from me. And from me, Michael. And from me, Jane. And uh, see you next time. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.